ready for the fifth class on the presentation of the multitudinous Christ. In the, in the map that we have given you on page six of the uh, lesson sheets, this is just a... Uh, the purpose in presenting this map was that, that uh, you might get some idea uh, of the thoughts that we had and the rooting, and, and we did not draw any lines between these things. We, we kept it to a little bit on the board. Uh, we went in some sort of direction, sort of like this. Give you an idea of, of what uh, uh, has been uh, presented here in, in this uh, series. In the uh, passing through the Red Sea, you know, we mentioned yesterday that some of the uh, uh, map makers in the Bible dictionaries and the, and the maps in the plates of your Bible many times have given the suggested route of the Exodus. And we have animated that we feel there is some parallel here, although, from, of course, in the multitudinous Christ case, they start at Sinai. Now, the Exodus back in Moses' time did not start at Sinai. It started over in Egypt, and they went through the sea and to Sinai and wandered 40 years in the wilderness and finally took this uh, roughly the same route uh, up uh, into the uh, Promised Land. They crossed the Jordan. Uh, under the guidance of Joshua, who was a type of Christ. Uh, this, of course, backtracks, and it, it's not a perfect parallel in that sense. And again, there are, we've already said that there possibly might be some uh, uh, areas of speculation here where we've missed it. Uh, there's a little anecdote about the passing through the Red Sea that... Uh, I think would be interesting to uh, those of you here. Asked what he'd learned at Sunday school, a 10-year-old began, well, our teacher told us about when God sent Moses behind the enemy lines to rescue the Israelites from the Egyptians. When they came to the Red Sea, Moses called for the engineers to build a pontoon bridge. After they had all crossed, they looked back and saw the Egyptian tanks coming. Quick as a flash, Moses radioed headquarters on his walkie-talkie to send bombers to blow up the bridge and save the Israelites. Bobby exclaimed his startled mother, is that really the way your teacher told that story? Well, not exactly, but if I told it her way, you'd never believe it. Several of the 1260 periods, the 2520 period, 
uh, and other marked dates that, that we can, uh, uh, 70 weeks of Daniel down in the, uh, where we changed from B.C. to A.D. there. Uh, but it's very likely that if we uh, make a study of the Jubilee cycles, uh, that the first cycle started back in B.C. 1435, and measuring in terms of 49 years, there, there has been some suggestion that there are 70 Jubilees paralleling the 70 weeks of Daniel's prophecy. And if that is uh, a logical assumption, Starting back there and measuring down, we are we, the 69th jubilee occurred at the time of uh, the declaration of Israel's statehood in 1947, and in this uh, combination 1972-73 period, uh, I guess it'd actually be 1971-72, wouldn't it? A half a jubilee, uh, be 24 and a half years if we're using a 49-year uh, count. But we're roughly now in the 69 and a half jubilee, and, and in that 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel, that was the time that the Messiah was uh, cut off. Uh, we're not suggesting any particular significance. Uh, many people have looked uh, to 1972 uh, as a very pivotal year, and of course the uh, 72 came and went w without any uh, particular uh, noticeable major event. Uh, we, we all feel, I'm sure, that God's plan graduated and, and made some progress along that uh, approach to the definite day that he has appointed. Uh, but they, uh, we, we have other successive days. We happen to feel very strongly that 4004 is the actual creation date, 4004 B.C., and that we are dealing with a 6,000-year period of, of man's dominion before entering on the 1,000 year uh, of uh, God's kingdom being established on earth. And if these numbers are correct, about 1996 and 97, we would come to the end of that time. Uh, what we're saying is a going institution. So now we are, uh, if we use the term 1996, we're only uh, some 23, 24 years away uh, from that, and our uh, perhaps problem is what can we put into this 23 or 24 years? Well, uh, we have uh, certain, in the lessons that we have uh, presented here to you, we have uh, Arab-Israeli uh, problems that may consume some of this time. We have the return of Christ and the judgment which could consume part of this 23-year uh, period that we suggest uh, may be remaining. Uh, we have uh, the destruction of Babylon. We have the preaching of the everlasting gospel. We have certain events that are going to require uh, some length of time, which really tell us in one thing, well, we're not, we're not saying that Christ is coming in 1996 and that we've got 23 years to either rest on our laurels or our take it easy now and speed up a little later. Uh, Christ could come today, tomorrow, the next day, and certainly not interfere with any of the things that we have said, uh, other than perhaps a, uh, we've suggested that maybe the Israeli Arabs uh, might have a conflict before the coming of Christ. Uh, in any event, uh, we don't think we're very far off in the uh, uh, items that we've presented to you 
that should disturb this uh, uh, sheet of uh, timetable we've given you here. I think we left yesterday in our, in our progress with, with the uh, multitudinous body uh, having come up to Jerusalem and to some degree uh, natural Israel is utilized in, uh, by the multitudinous group to assist in expelling the nations from that area and calling attention uh, to the fact that they are God's people and that he intends to use them as the uh, mortal nucleus uh, of the forthcoming age. With the expulsion of Gog and her allies, Christ and the saints now occupy Jerusalem as the potential capital of the world. Uh, we suggest that if, if there is warfare uh, to the degree that we've suggested, that, and we've also just talked about an earthquake that uh, divides the Mount of Olives uh, immediate, immediately uh, east of Jerusalem, that we've got a lot of ruins here. We're, we're talking of a ruined and, and uh, rubble-filled city. The Jews have suffered great losses and have been converted, as we've suggested, to their Savior, the Messiah. No national political power of any consequence remains uh, to challenge the supremacy of the new power who has now moved into Jerusalem. There's a great amount of cleaning up to do. There's work to be done in setting boundaries for the 12 tribes of Israel and establishing them in tribal allotments. There's a temple to be constructed in the Jerusalem area. And there is, of course, at this stage, the demolishing of the great apostate ecclesiastical enemy style Babylon. Now, the fall of Babylon is considered in some detail in the Apocalypse. The sequence of major events as we see them are one, the proclamation of the everlasting gospel spoken of in uh, Revelation 14.6, and this is to be done at the, uh, by the mouth of the multitude, two, the destruction of the papal system, and three, the destruction of those who worship the beast and his enemies. Because we're suggesting uh, that, first of all, the, the nucleus and headquarters of this uh, papal system is destroyed, and then later on those who have given ear and support and, and credence uh, to this system, uh, after having an opportunity to listen to the, to the message of the multitude, are ultimately destroyed. Sort of a probationary uh, period which we will comment on uh, very shortly. With this accomplished, Christ will have eradicated all enemies political and ecclesiastical, and will have established his throne in the earth. Is he king while these battles with Gog and Babylon are going on? Now, this is a question that's raised itself uh, many times. That is, are we in the millennium? Or maybe to some people this may be two separate questions. To me, it is one. And we answer, no, we are not in the millennium. And we answer, no, he is not king while he is making his march. Now, certainly he is the supreme power of the world. Uh, he has every right to be king. Uh, he has every power and he has every authority. Uh, but we feel that we're in a transition period here where he is demolishing 
and absorbing all the other kingdoms. And until he gets this done and can stand alone in the earth, as Zechariah has prophesied, that there will be one Lord and his name one, we feel, uh, just by way of opinion, that his kingship has not started officially. Alexander the Great was not ruler over the world until he had defeated the Persians, even though he certainly had the armies, the weapons, the, uh, the know-how, and all that it took, and we could cite perhaps other historical uh, instances, that until a certain final country was taken, it could not be said of this other uh, uh, power that they were uh, supreme. Yes. Supplementing your thought, the, uh, there have been several that have, have uh, given to this uh, preparatory and setting up work the type of David, and that once we reach the millennial age, they feel that this is the type of Solomon, so that all of the warfare and destruction and putting down of the enemy is left to the Davidic phase of the multitude, whereas the Solomonic phase uh, would be that of, of having achieved peace and saying there are no more enemies and, and minds are generally uh, subjected uh, to this new order of things. We would not bother with all the details in the prophets and in the apocalypse if this, uh, if this program, or as we uh, ineffectively tried to use that French word, de new mal, if that's the pronunciation, uh, was something of a presto changeo nature. In other words, if God had said, never mind the details, never mind any types, never mind any Davidic or Solomonic or, or uh, typical Exodus type things, just wake up some morning and there'll be a, a change, uh, certainly uh, this thing wouldn't have the interest that it does uh, now. We always want to keep in mind uh, that this is a day of vengeance. It's a day when God's fury comes up in his face. And particularly, uh, we want to recognize that it is a time when God will be using the strongest and also the wisest of methods and resources to call attention to his name and his purpose. Uh, he's not trying to uh, see how many formative things that he can create in the sense of, uh, of uh, terrestrial, uh, he, he is saying that my name and the glorification and understanding uh, associated with it uh, is what I'm drawing attention to. It is truly, as we have read in previous scriptures, a time of reformation, reformation and restitution, or, or settling down and a restraining out uh, of things that man has uh, adulterated down through the uh, years. In Zephaniah, we have a, an appropriate reading in the third chapter there. Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger. 
For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict thee. I will save her that halteth, and gather her that was driven out, and I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. So our opinion is that Christ is not officially king until he is disposed of all his enemies. As soon as the papal system and its worshipers have been, according to the uh, apocalyptic language, cast into the lake of fire, then the state of affairs upon the earth changes from a lake of fire condition to a sea of tranquility, and the millennial reign is then ushered in. There's a great deal uh, concerning the fall of Babylon. Uh, we have made one reference here, uh, Eureka 3, 3b, page 39 and 40, but that's, uh, Eureka is certainly full of the descriptions uh, of Babylon and, and its uh, uh, the sins that have been associated with it and its uh, the destruction that is to be associated with it. Now concerning the uh, angel proclamation of the everlasting gospel, under the law of Moses, the Pentecostian feast of first fruits was followed in the first day of the seventh month by the memorial of the blowing of trumpets, a Sabbath of holy convocation, inviting to a holy rest and assembly. This followed this feast of first fruits. Between this memorial and the offering of an offering made by fire unto Yahweh was an interval of ten days. This tenth day of the seventh month was Yom Hakipurim, a day of covering. We call it Yom Kippur today, or the Jews do. But the uh, Hebrew wording that we have here is Hakki, H-A-K-K-I, Hakki, P-H, it's H-A-K-K-I-P-H is the, sort of the first phrase of that, Hakif and Purim, P-U-R-I-M. So Yom Hakif Purim, or Yom Kippur, a day of coverings. And the significance of this is that it was a day on which the sins of the past were being covered over by fiery expiation. We refer to this as the Day of Atonement. But before this day of affliction, in which all who did not afflict themselves on account of their transgressions were to be cut off from Yahweh's people, the trumpets blew a memorial blast to remind the people that the hour or month of the annual judgment and covering of sins had arrived. The sons of Aaron, the priests, were appointed to blow the trumpets in the day of their gladness, in their solemn days, over their burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of their peace offerings. That's Leviticus 23:24. The antitype of this arrangement is found in Revelation 14:6. The Pentecost is celebrated in the inauguration of the deities, kings, and priests on Mount Zion, the bread of the firstfruits. Then comes the memorial proclamation by these priests of the deity, reminding the world that the hour of judicial retribution has arrived and inviting men to afflict their souls 
and turning from their iniquities to the reverential fear and worship of him who made all things. When this proclamation has been made to the end of the world, the jubilee blast of the day of coverings on the tenth day of the seventh month is then blown. A jubilee to Israel, and if you would refer again to our timetable, this very likely could be the period uh, that we've suggested is 1996. That, that's, that's the end of the 70th uh, jubilee when Israel's probation uh, has ended. This jubilee will proclaim their return to their country in fullness and the consequent revenge upon all of their enemies who worship the beast and his image and receive his sign in their foreheads or in their hands. This is the day of vengeance in his heart of the Lamb, contemporary with the year of his redeemed, spoken of in Isaiah 53, 4. The angel who makes the memorial proclamation is symbolical of the royal priests of the Melchizedek household. The mosaic type requires that the silver trumpets be blown by priests of the high priest family. The priesthood being changed, the Aaronic priests are ineligible for the sounding of this proclamation. The priestly trumpeters have to be provided from another source, and there is no other source of supply but the saints and the faithful in Christ Jesus, whom he has made kings and priests for deity. It is this faithful remnant that is sent as sounders of the truth to the nations that have not heard the fame nor seen the glory of Yahweh. And they shall declare his glory to the Gentiles, says Isaiah 66:19. Also in Psalm 68:11, and there's a, we would like to reemphasize, as we already have, that in these psalms there's a, there is a great amount of prophetic uh, implication. Psalm 68:11, Adonai will give the word. Those who bear the tidings are a great host. This seems to indicate that it, it is in this area of time that, that a great, great host goes forth to bear tidings uh, of a proclamation type. The consummative work of the 6,000 years is the overthrow of the apostate system. This system had its origin in Eden. Its adherents were practically unanimous 1,656 years later at the time of the flood. It had some formal organization soon after the flood under the leadership of Nimrod, whose kingdom began in Babel, or the original Babylon. It manifested itself in the idolatrous neighboring nations to Israel for some thousand years and drew many from Israel into its ranks. It had a world-controlled leadership under Nebuchadnezzar and his successor kings during Great Babylon's 70 years sway. It, con it continued foreign to the truth through the Medo-Persian and Grecian eras. Its most treacherous and consumptive era was that of the Roman Empire, which graduated into the Roman Catholic and Holy Roman Empire aspects of this formal apostate devourers of men's souls. The obnoxious stink of this false system should be considered and pondered by all who profess to be the brethren of Christ. The blasphemous claims made by this false prophet will be avenged completely when great Babylon 
comes in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. We might just, aside from our notes, comment on this, as we have perhaps many times, is that we feel that the ecclesiastical enemy, in, in terms of rank, is a great deal more obnoxious to God than, say, Russia or, or some godless country. In other words, it's, it's less serious to say to God, I don't believe in you and I don't believe you exist, than it is to say that I am God or that I represent a system that I advocate to you as being uh, God's way, as the uh, apostate system has done down through these uh, many years, has pretended to uh, stand in God's shoes and represent him and be his voice of authority and has sold men's souls or devoured men's souls uh, to the uh, massive extent that it has. Uh, we feel that the uh, consequence of this is that the greater destruction uh, is poured out upon this enemy. The, the prime stage is held in abeyance until this uh, final last year, if, we, if you will, of the 6,000, or uh, final last few years of the 6,000, so that it will be pointed out to the people that survive that this system is going down the drain, that we will have it no more, that it is my greatest enemy and my greatest abhorrence, says God, and let this remain very firm and steadfast and fixed in your minds. Revelation 7.14 indicates that ten horns, who may well be the ten members of the European common market, since this is the territory occupied by the earlier Roman Empire, who I think Brother Thomas says was neither holy nor Roman. Uh, certainly we recognize the first, uh, and it was, it was away from the uh, formal city of Rome since it extended into the areas of, of continental Europe. Uh, these ten horns are to lend their assistance to Babylon in making war with the Lamb. The suggestion is that the papal group is the aggressor against Christ. You notice the language of Revelation 7, 4, 17, 14, where it says, These make war against the Lamb. In other words, they, they go to get him, as it were. Whereas in the case of uh, the previous battle with Gog, Gog is the aggressor and coming down from the north upon the mountains of Israel and he is dealt with uh, in this sense. Uh, well, I should, I should follow that up by saying he is aggressor in, in a sense of having potted himself there, but, but Christ aggressively goes from uh, Sinai uh, to destroy him. In other words, once he sees him there, Christ becomes the aggressor. In this case, uh, there, there seems to be more aggression put, uh, put forth by the... Uh, uh, group uh, of apostate uh, nations here that are uh, will not see or want Christ to uh, rule over the earth. The arena of conflict uh, does not seem to be uh, specified, at least to us. There have been many affirmations that the uh, city of Rome is completely demolished. Now this may be done earthquake-wise or it might be done uh, in some other way, uh, militarily. Uh, we don't have a, a strong opinion on that. Dr. Thomas commented that the man of one or the perfect man or the multitude invades Europe. Uh, he doesn't comment 
to any degree on this, but he suggests that they invade Europe to uh, destroy this uh, system. It could be that the cleaning up of the land of Israel, and we throw this out for what logic it may have, uh, the cleaning up of the land of Israel and the building of the temple, which is to be finished during this 23-year period that we speak about, uh, is to be finished before the millennium starts, and it will be reserved. That is, the land of Israel may be reserved by deity for these purposes. In other words, he's saying, uh, in my program, I'm going to set the land apart. Now, we've had enough fighting here. We'll go out and fight in some other parts because I've got, I've got to build a temple. I've got to straighten out the land. I've got to have a few things done here, and I, I don't need any warfare going on to uh, get in my way. Certainly the shrines and the edifices of the false prophet, as well as the bishops who attend them, are earmarked for a part of the destruction to be meted out by Christ and the saints. The daughters of the harlot cannot be expected to escape the judgments of the time, and her organizations extend from one end of the earth to the other, as we well know. It would appear to me that the political phase of Armageddon involving Gog and all his bands is drawn to the locale of the Holy Land that deity might call attention to his purpose with his people Israel and that the ecclesiastical phase of Armageddon involving Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, is spread out to all corners of the earth to call attention to deity's purpose to individually save those who will not be deceived by false Christianity but will turn to serve the true and living God. The work of the multitudinous Christ is a glorious one. The unity in itself is a glorious spirit substance, and we, we cannot conceive of their work being anything else but that of glory. Concerning this work, Isaiah 11:14, He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. The immortals will not require guns, spears, explosives, and the usual assortment of weapons and meeting out their work of destruction. It could be that they employ the power of electricity in the execution of the judgments written. The many firepower manifestations of deity in the past were not manufactured with some fuel, but were emanations of the all-powerful spirit. The pillar of fire in the wilderness is one example. The glory of Yahweh abiding on Mount Sinai prior to Moses' ascension and described in Exodus 24:17 as like devouring fire is another. And in 2 Samuel 22, there is an account of a psalm of David that seems to have a prophetic connotation. There went up a smoke out of his deity's nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it and he rode upon a cherub and did fly. And he was seen upon the wings of the wind, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning, and discomfited them. The fire of the Lord in answer to Elijah's prayer to consume the sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the water and the dust in the confrontation with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel is strong evidence of the power of the Spirit. From Eureka, volume 1, page 78 and 79, we read a short, short, very short paragraph here. He dwells, speaking of deity, in unapproachable light and is a consuming fire. 
light and heat, then, in their essentiality, with incorruptibility and life, are concentered in his substance. For he is the great focal center of these in all the power of the universe. And note the next sentence particularly, because this is very uncharacteristic of, of Dr. Thomas, because he's always so positive and affirmative. Uh, but he's in a, a subject of so, such a magnificence that he says, If I might venture a conjecture upon so profound a subject, I would suggest that the divine nature is that wonderful and extraordinary essence observed in that terrible and destructive agents the scriptures term spirit, but the philosophers term electricity, consolidated and corporealized from the necessity of the thing. This growing substance is too intensely bright for human vision. Therefore, Paul not only says, whom no, no man hath seen, but adds, nor can see. The prospects for the future shines very brightly for the aspiring kings of the sun's risings, or for this, another name for this multitudinous unity. There has never been in the history of God's creation such a race of kings. This is the, uh, what he has reserved for this stage, uh, final stage of his program. When they shall appear upon the theater of humanity, the reigning kings of Europe will make war upon them because they, the saints, proclaim themselves to be the sole and rightful sovereigns of the earth, saying to their great captain, Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us for the deity by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us for our deity kings and priests, and we shall reign upon the earth. This is a, a declarative and a very affirmative statement that will be uh, said and, and uttered uh, at this time. Their glory and honor and the glory and honor of the nations they have acquired by conquest become tributary to the new Jerusalem. For these new kings and the great and holy city are one and the same as far as, as a political entity. They are Zion's kings, and their throne of empire is the geographical or architectural Jerusalem on Mount Zion, the spot where David reigned. For this now desolate and widowed and troubled and barren city, they have a special and unfailing affection, as we should have. Even now, their words are, If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. But when the day of their glory, honor, and power is revealed, they show their affection in their policy toward her. They deliver her from her captivity under Gog, and they compel the Gentiles to bow down to her with face toward the earth and to lick up the dust of her feet. With Jerusalem redeemed and the glorified saints enthroned within her walls as the kings of the earth, the abundance of the sea shall be turned to her, and the wealth of the nations shall come unto her. 
Her gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day nor night, that they may bring into her the wealth of the nations, and that their kings may be brought. For the nation and the kingdom that will not serve her shall perish. Her officers shall be peace, and her exactors righteousness. Her walls salvation, and her gates praise. Her sun shall no more go down, neither shall her moon withdraw herself. For Yahweh shall be her everlasting light, and the days of her mourning shall be ended. This is from the 60th chapter of Isaiah. In the reading of the 67th Psalm, We see such a parallel as we keep reiterating in the, uh, so I suppose we could say, past, present, and future application of so many of these psalms. Certainly they're, they're, uh, they're expressive of the times of David. They're applicable and helpful uh, to us uh, in this year of our probation and back through the years where brethren uh, have gathered together in the hope of these things. And certainly they are prophetic, we suggest, of times uh, very shortly to be revealed uh, in this great picture. God be merciful unto us and bless us, and cause his face to shine upon us, Selah, that thy way may be known among, upon earth, thy saving health among all nations. We feel this perhaps is predictive of the coming millennial age. Let the people praise thee, O God, let all the people praise thee, certainly a condition uh, we do not have present in the earth today. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the people praise thee, O God, let all the people praise thee. Then shall the earth yield her increase, and God, even our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. So this is merely one selection, and, and there are many more beautiful selections that tell us, in effect, the same thing. I guess in, in closing the class, we still have a few minutes that we could have for uh, discussion. Uh, we're not going to review our itinerary again. We, we say with little apology that uh, we, we've presented thoughts that we uh, hope are helpful for two reasons. Uh, there are people who have not yet uh, entered into covenant relationship or come to an acceptance of the truth. Uh, 
that the coming of Christ could be uh, any time. It might be 10, 15 years away. I, I don't know. I'm not predicting that either. Uh, but we, the consummative thing, we feel the outside date uh, is uh, 1996. This 1,335 years, again, we, we feel that there, there are a few weak points on, on this uh, numbers chart. Uh, why it does not coincide, coincide with the 1996, uh, maybe some question. Again, maybe we have the figure wrong. The 1,335 is generally associated with the combination of the 1260, which would have ended in 1917, and the uh, 1290, which would have, have uh, coincided with 1947, and uh, the 1335, which would end in 1992. And the only thing that is said in the 12th chapter of Daniel about the 1335 is, blessed is he that cometh to the 1335 years. Uh, certainly, uh, it, it, I think it's very likely that uh, sometime between this date and 1992 that the uh, resurrection could have taken place, the saints could have been uh, glorified and could have entered upon and done some of their works. In other words, there could have been blessing in, in, in the sense of immortality before this time. The blessing of 1,335 years might indicate a certain achievement, might uh, have a, uh, a certain achievement such as we've uh, tried to picture here. Maybe they have gone and done certain things. Maybe they have uh, recruited, if that's the word, or converted uh, certain of the elements in the uh, other parts of the world, and, and that there is a particular point or resting point here at this stage where they, they feel greatly uh, blessed in having achieved a specific portion uh, of God's uh, uh, program preparatory to the uh, symbolical seventh day of rest. Are there any questions that, that might be uh, forthcoming at this time? I think we still have, uh, my watch has been a little fast, I think, to, I, I think we have ten minutes. Uh, Brother Chapman? I was on the chart there, that you have a black dog, and the sign that I have Your question. I don't know of any reason. I have no particular reason other than uh, I tried to uh, utilize two things. One, uh, proximity, which is really no scriptural guide, and secondly, the parallel to the Exodus. Now, I, I cannot get the multitudinous Christ out of Egypt without getting it over there. Uh, of course, the shortest way would be to go from Sinai, and again, Egypt. We might be talking here, or we might be talking here. You know, I, I've just drawn an arbitrary spot right here. Egypt is a country of so many miles uh, uh, around and through. So we're, we're uh, the children of Israel, of course, I think we're more likely up closer to the top here in the land of Goshen. That's why some of these maps draw are sent across the marshes here and sort of denied that they could pass through. No, I, this, this is not intended to say the children of Israel. This is supposedly the Israel of the future. Yes?
if I don't know really that, that you're suggesting maybe that they, they're not in Egypt, are you? which we tried to give to you on the bringing again from the depths of the sea and, and uh, calling from Egypt and, and references to uh, deliverance from Egypt. And uh, I would say this is probably a third factor that caused me to bring this uh, uh, line of march uh, from here over to here and back. Now, there, there may very well be in fact Habakkuk and Deuteronomy and Psalms I think we can say that, and, and I have no objection to, uh, uh, to that, that type of thinking, and, and I don't think it's any more right or wrong than mine. Uh, yes? No. That's right. That's right. Uh, my, my, uh, my thought was that when he goes down in here, that even the, the Gorgian invader is saturated this land. Some Russian uh, strongholds in, in these areas liberates Israel, brings them along with them through the sea. There's a, a national baptism or, or confirmation again that these are my people. Uh, they uh, are brought as, I don't know how to call them other than uh, just uh, released captives with them up through this area at Boston. And they do not, in my opinion, God has chosen it in the uh, selection of Judah as his battle axe and Ephraim as his arrow or sword or some other uh, instrument, that they perhaps do lend uh, some support to the battle uh, in a uh, fashion to, to call attention to their Jewishness, to the fact that God is, is working around this people, and he wants the nations to know uh, that this was not done by a, a, uh, a white garment multitude that, that is unidentifiable by man, but that there was some Jewish uh, attachment to it. Uh, and 
somebody might help me here. I don't have the verse at hand, but doesn't doesn't it say either in Isaiah or, or Zechariah that sons of strangers shall build the temple? What, what's the? Is it Isaiah? Isaiah 60. Uh, uh, Brother Sully, uh, I believe, says that these people come there from an economic uh, famine throughout the earth, that this is the, perhaps the only place to gain employment at that time, which uh, I personally don't subscribe particularly to that thinking, uh, uh, it, but I, I don't have an adequate substitute to say, well, who is it? Uh, it, it could be that if, if upon uh, attaining supremacy in Jerusalem, that the uh, new government uh, is then dedicated to the final destruction of Babylon, and that they have issued a, a gospel proclamation, which, which is, in effect, uh, cast off the shackles of this system that has deceived you for, for a number of years, uh, that the invitees at this time may make up the uh, portion, the converted ones, uh, Gentiles, if you will, uh, uh, probationers who will be mortal or, or probationary uh, subjects of the kingdom, might come in to uh, assist and help in doing this work. Brother Steve? Go ahead and add to that if you want. 
Yeah, just, just as, uh, I don't want to say advice, uh, I, don't, I sometimes don't feel capable of, of giving that, but a uh, suggestion that in everybody's consideration of these things, uh, it's a poor reason of conclusion to say, well, well, somebody said they were going to do it. I saw it at Bible school, and they, they said they were going into Egypt, therefore they're going into Egypt. I, I certainly would rather everybody in here disagree but be convinced on, on some logic or some scripture that such was the case. And uh, if somebody says, the, you know, the temple is going to be built such and such a time, but my logic in this is that I look upon the thousand-year reign as a rest, as a literal rest, and that the, all of the chaff and the preliminaries and, and the drudgery-type things will be out of the way so that when this year 6,001 day rolls over, that we have a, a restful situation uh, facing us, and we don't have to go out and, and, and find out, oh, here's, here's three or four more colonies of Babylon that we didn't get, or here's some things we forgot about constructing, and things like this. So that, that's my logic, which is, uh, that, that appeals to me. Sure. Maybe this, make this our last question. I think our time is gone. I miss it. Yeah, I think what happened, and uh, an excuse is that I got down uh, compiling this material, and I said, "Well, I need another four or five pages, but I better stop now and make my notes that I intended to type up for the class." So I anticipated in these notes uh, certain things that I did not get incorporated into the lessons, uh, and, and right now it's, it's rather late, but uh, uh, just. Make them a, a personal study, if, if you will. But in the, I believe it's the uh, 19th chapter. Do I give references there? The 19th of Revelation on the Hallelujah. Uh, well, there are two or three Hallelujahs uh, at various stages here, showing accomplishments by the saints. And the word Hallelujah, which has come to be uh, adulterated by man's use of it, is sort of a slang expression of, of, of I've achieved something or something. But it's a very sobering expression incorporating God's name, uh, his memorial name, uh, that we should, uh, I think, think very seriously on. Thank you very much. Uh, the hallelujah is merely an expression, as I see it, of, uh, of victory, and uh, the Yah is, is addressed to him. Praise is the, is the significance of the, of the word. Praise to Yah. And certainly on the accomplishment of these things, uh, praise should and will be given uh, to him. No, it's uh, 10 to 11. So we're, we're, our time's up, right, Paul?